the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back to the show, turning our attention to uh, geopolitics and economics. Uh, It's not just the Keystone Pipeline cancellation that uh, has uh, Canadians spinning. Poor Justin Trudeau, we thought uh, with the Democrat Socialists in the White House, things could be all hunky-dory. Maybe they could go out shopping for skinny suits. Maybe not. The uh, Buy American restrictions that are being advanced by the Biden administration also putting a crimp in Canada style, so writes Peter St. Ange, senior fellow at the Montreal Economic Institute and former fellow at the Mises Institute. He's also contributed to the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Post and Zero Hedge. Peter St. Ange, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So a bit of a right left, right cross left hook from the Biden administration for uh, for the Canadians. Uh, The Keystone Pipeline cancellation has gotten a lot of ink. But uh, what you write about in the Wall Street Journal, less so uh, the Buy American demands. That's right. So Biden has done two things uh, with an executive order last week. One of them is that he wants to raise the threshold of American components that products have to have in them. The other is he wants to eliminate all of these exceptions to those kinds of rules that Trump had put in. Uh, And both of these are, they're extremely disruptive. They're going to be terrible for consumers, but they're really hard on uh, Canadian export industries. Well, uh, give give us an example of of what you mean. I know you uh, write about uh, the automotive industry in in particular and, and how they're you know, that that's situated such that uh, there is a cross-border competition as well as collaboration. And how does a, a Buy American disrupt that flow of commerce? That's exactly right. The way that the auto component industry works today is that the province of Ontario, it may as well be part of the U.S. in terms of supply chains. Uh, it's very, very integrated. It's right next to Detroit, right? So it's got a long history of uh, auto manufacturers down there. And so the way it'll work is, for example, U.S. scrap steel gets exported into Ontario. It gets worked into cars. There's other components from all over the world that are brought together. Some of them are assembled in the States. Some of them are assembled in Canada. And then they're re-exported back. So from the perspective of supply chains, Canada is really part of the U.S. It's, It's sort of one machine that works together. And when you try to stick a finger in there, uh, <laughs> you can really wreck things. Uh, and, you know, specific to the sort of nationalistic sentiment here, the specific risk is that if you break that smoothly operating North American supply chain, then the risk is that cars become more expensive, they become lower quality, and then people end up buying just a direct import. They buy a car from Korea. They just completely bypass the whole North American ecosystem. And you mentioned uh, something, you know, already the impact being felt. Scrap steel prices up 60% since November, while order backlogs have hit a two-and-a-half-year high. And you essentially insinuate that uh, these are the sorts of distortions you're going to get based on the policies that are being pursued. For sure. This is not the time to be, uh, you know, changing out entire industries. Between COVID uh, and then, you know, Federal Reserve uh, money printing, 
you have, you know, shortages. I mean, any kind of a, you know, we have a two and a half year backlog uh, on some sorts of uh, metals um, used as components. That is also known as a shortage. A two and a half year backlog is is catastrophic, right? If you're trying to introduce a new company or a new product. Uh, and then, you know, when you have these price rises on top of that, you have these massive disruptions throughout a number of industries. And whether it's this sort of clumsy mandate or whether it's green, you know, policies that are probably next in the pipeline, these sorts of disruptions, they're really not helpful at the moment, right? Industries are trying to get back on their feet. There are already shortages and disruptions. Uh, this is not the time for this kind of uh, messing around. And uh, this also um, is a reminder of how important Canada is as a trading partner in the United States. There's so much emphasis on on China and that relationship. Um, but that relationship came into the fore more during the Trump administration again with the renegotiation of the of NAFTA into the USMCA, as well as with some of the back and forth of tariffs based on uh, tariffs the Trump administration initiated and and the Trudeau administration responded with. And now we seem to be uh, only heightening uh, some of that uh, destructive back and forth. Absolutely. And, you know, something that we want to keep in mind is that industries located in Canada or Mexico, they can be very complementary to U.S. industries, right? When you're shipping steel 40 miles and then you're shipping a car back 40 miles, this is supporting industries based in the U.S., right? In China, you don't have nearly that level of integration. So the end result is that any sort of policy that is, you know, punishing or um, either Canadian or Mexican manufacturing that sort of um, rebounds and hits U.S. manufacturing as well. Uh, when we come back, I want to pull out a little bit and have a little bit la- larger conversation about uh, free trade. Maybe it's time we could get uh, some on the uh, Republican side of the aisle to rediscover the utility of free trade as a pr- opposed to protectionism. Uh, more with Peter St. On, Schienerfeld, the Montreal Economic Institute, former fellow at the Mises Institute, right after this. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Peter Sainan, Schiener Fellow at the Montreal Economic Institute, former fellow at the Mises Institute, contributor to the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Post, and Zero Hedge. And uh, just thinking about the Mises Institute and Ludwig von Mises. One of my favorite observations of his from human action is that in order to improve conditions, uh, one must uh, propagate a new mentality, not merely a new institution. Um, Maybe to improve economic conditions, particularly as we try to semi-recover from COVID with semi-open countries, is to propagate a newfound mentality in the direction of free trade, and uh, for socialists on both sides of the border to be reminded by, I don't know, capitalists on both sides of the northern border, uh, what my friend Don Boudreau likes to say, that the purpose of exporting goods and services is to import goods and services. Oh, for sure. And there are two aspects of it, right? One of them is sort of the human rights aspect. We have a right to trade with people just as we have a right to be friends with people or to talk with people. Governments have put this uh, special sort of permission on, you know, anytime money changes hands, the government sort of pipes in. Now, presumably they did it because they want to cut, 
But at any yeah, rate, right. uh, we live in this bizarre world where it's as if you're sitting in the park and you'd like to talk to somebody and you have to get a license. It's insane. So, right, from a human rights perspective, we have the right to buy and sell with whomever we like. And if those people are in the same country or the same city or the same continent, none of this should be relevant to our right. Sorry. And then the second part of it is, of course, uh, if you can trade with anybody, you get much richer because if you can buy components from anywhere, it makes your products much better and then your exports become extremely competitive. So the way to win at trade is to be open. And it's counterintuitive, but it's it's empirically very strong. Yeah, and uh, and we we saw that play out. I mean, again, I understand people wanted to uh, see asymmetrical approach to China, and maybe there was some short-term pain required for long-term gain with respect to the Chinese. But, uh, but 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 in terms of the impact, it's not really arguable that it made both countries poorer. The tariff tete a tete between the United States and China, and the same thing with the United States and Canada. But of course, industries have political power and profile, and consumers don't. Uh, uh, and so it's just a, I guess it's a harder. Ironically, it seems like it's harder to flack for the little guy when it comes to trade uh, than it is the big boys, even among people who have a mistrust of the big boys on behalf of the little guys. Absolutely. And that's the way that, unfortunately, quote unquote, free trade works these days. You end up with these, I think uh, the U.S.-Korea free trade pact was something like 1,500 pages. Now, of course, to have true free trade, right, to have free trade between Connecticut and New Jersey, you don't have anything. You've got a single sentence in the Constitution, right? So what are the other, you know, 1,499 pages? And the answer is, it's this bidding, it's almost an auction by special interests where, you know, Hollywood wants IP protection, pharma wants IP protection, in exchange, we sell manufacturing down the river. So you have sort of this auction where you've got a bunch of interest groups in the US, you've got a bunch of interest groups in, say, Korea, and they hold an auction. And then the governments put all that together, they see what's their angle on it, what's their take, how are the special interests going to pay them back, and then they carry the water. So it's disgusting to even call these things free trade agreements. A free trade agreement should be one sentence. QED, you are done. Yeah. Well, right, we're about uh, 1,500 pages short of that uh, uh, with, all the, with all these agreements. Yeah, unfortunately. Well, so with, with respect to Canada, what, what uh, should the Biden administration expect will be the response to this one-two punch? We're talking about the Keystone Pipeline XL cancellation and, and this uh, Buy American imposition. Uh, are we going to be back into that protocol of, uh, of, of, of uh, firing tariffs back and forth at one another or something even more economically destructive? That's exactly what we should expect down the line. All countries have a whole list of uh, retaliatory measures that they can take. They calibrate it very carefully. I suspect that Canada is going to wait and see a little bit. It's a new administration. They don't want to make too many enemies. The U.S. is a so overwhelmingly important market for Canada that Canada has to tread lightly. Uh, for most countries, that's the case, right? The U.S. is a much bigger customer than the other direction. So Canada is probably going to sort of wait and see a little bit and test the waters and see who's an ally, who's a friend. Uh, there's going to be some sort of negotiation in the background. But fundamentally, that's how these things end, is that you've got to do retaliation because countries ha- feel like they have to protect themselves. Now, of course, again, they could always do the Hong Kong thing and just throw it all open and say, eh. But, you know, there is some risk there. I mean, there are countries, specifically China, who are, in many ways, they are bad faith traders. Right. Uh, they do things like uh, Steel. mandating technology transfer, for sure. Yeah. So, you know, it's not if you throw it completely open, 
there are some short-term risks for sure. Uh, but right, that's what we're probably going to see as a tit for tat. What, uh, have they given up on uh, trying to uh, rescue the uh, continuing construction of the Keystone Pipeline? I mean, there is uh, uh, some suggestion that uh, this, uh, ironically, that the precedent that was set during the Trump administration uh, by the, the United States Supreme Court preventing him from uh, from from eliminating the DACA designations, the DACA executive order that Obama. Uh, signed in his administration, which was illegal, he could not just rescind that without going through an administrative process. Well, you could argue that that standard the Supreme Court set, that precedent they set in that case, could be used in terms of a reliance concern that was created by the executive order uh, animating the Keystone XL pipeline cannot be rescinded by Biden without going through an administrative process to sort of buy time for maybe a resolution or uh, some other outcome that's more positive than the one than than uh, more positive than cancellation frankly right and you'll probably see uh various litigation in both countries the parties building the pipeline they've been so abused over the years this has been such a difficult process such a political football Um, right for sure they were aware of this kind of risk uh there is some point where they simply walk away and find another project you know the sort of dynamics in canada that alberta has this tremendous amount of oil and it can't get it out uh, because some of the other provinces are sort of led by green governments that don't want pipelines. So it's stuck. It's like in this bowl. And the U.S. could have, to be frank, taken advantage of that and gotten the oil cheap, uh, you know, and then export our own oil. You know, so we use the cheap Canadian oil and then we export the expensive oil that's down in Texas close to the ports. So this was ready to be a fantastic gift to the U.S., but instead Biden walked away from it. Peter St. On, senior fellow at the Montreal Economic Institute, former fellow at the Mises Institute, contributor to the Journal, the Financial Post, and Zero Hedge as well. Peter, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. Podcast of the show at danproftshow.com.